Tony Park has set another fast and furious adventure in Africa. The momentum in your writing carries the reader in a similar pace. It's certainly a page-turner. Welcome back, Tony. Jan, thanks very much for having me back on the programme. Now, an empty coast. There is a mother and daughter at the centre of this novel, and like like most, they've had their difficulties, haven't they? <laughs> yeah, I've brought back uh, one of my characters from one of my earlier books, The Delta, Sonia Kurtz, who's a female mercenary, and her daughter, Emma, who was also in the, the last book that, uh, that they were both in. She was a very sort of troubled teenager back at the time. They were clashing quite a lot. And uh, in this book, they both moved on a bit. They're both a bit older, and uh, their relationship is still not perfect, but they're, I think they're both trying very hard to make it worth and uh, make it work now that Emma's a bit more growing up. I must say, I thought there must have been a back history to them. I, I hadn't read that book, but I hadn't needed to because this one, once again, stands by itself. Yeah, they're very much standalone books, the two stories. Yeah, it's not essential to read one without the other. No, mother and daughter, well, they've followed very different career paths. Mother Sonia is a military contractor. Yeah. What's that gobbledygook a, a, for? A bit of a euphemism for mercenary. I think, a mercenary. So and she, she, she's got a, a military background uh, dating back sort of about 20 years earlier uh, when although she's African-born, she'd actually served with the British Army. And that, funnily enough, is not totally out of the bounds of possibility. I mean, I, I have quite a few friends in South Africa, Zimbabwe and some of the neighbouring countries who've, uh, whose children have moved overseas. That's mm-hmm. not unusual. Some of them have followed a military career outside of Africa. And uh, Sonia has reinvented herself as a modern-day mercenary. Yeah, well daughter Emma is sometimes ashamed to tell her friends what her mother does for a living. Now what's Emma studying? Yeah, Emma's studying archaeology but interestingly she's been drawn to um, battlefield archaeology. Battlefield? And there really is such a thing? Yeah, there really really is such a thing. You know, researching a book is always part of the fun, I've I've always said and uh, I was actually doing, I actually did a a few biographies, I did a non-fiction book a few years ago set on the Kokoda Trail and had some contact with uh, Sydney based uh, battlefield archaeology Archaeologists. I was amazed to, to find them. These guys specialise in going around to old conflict zones. Uh, often they're called on to try and identify the bodies of Australian servicemen who've mm. been killed in action in the past in places like Vietnam and, and other battlefields where we fought. So they were doing excavations up on the Kokoda Trail and I thought, that's fascinating. And I thought, I'd like to work that into a book. And Emma is not comfortable with her mother's chosen profession, a bit embarrassed about it, but there's something about the life of action that her mother leads that I think strikes a bit of a secret chord with her as well. Well, where is she now? Where is she? Because she's, she's out in the field. Out in the field in Namibia, uh, a country that I've visited several times over the years and really wanted to set a book in, which is uh, why I, I got around to writing this book, An Empty Coast in Namibia, because it's such a beautiful country and it's a country of extreme contrasts. And uh, so I've, I've put Emma on an archaeological dig up near the Tosha National Park, which is probably Namibia's flagship wildlife destination and a place that I love visiting and uh, she and her cohorts uncover a body in the case of their in the course of working on the dig. Jan that Namibia today is is very much at peace and a very peaceful very successful mm. friendly place to visit yet it's a, it's only in relatively recent times that it was at the center of, of conflicts almost at the epicenter of, of a number of conflicts so South Africa uh, under the apartheid regime was fighting a war on its northern borders um, really on its extreme borders mm. up in Angola 
which is north mm. of, of Namibia, yeah. just to put it in, into perspective, uh, there was a, uh, a, a left-wing communist-backed regime in Angola and the right-wing South Africans weren't happy about this. So part of their strategy was to, to support anti-communist rebels in that country and at the same time try and prop up their re- regime in neighbouring Namibia, which they ran as a client state. So there was a war of independence happening in Namibia. Yeah. There was a Cold War clash between the... Uh, the East and the West under the proxy of South Africa and Angola. And it's incredibly complex, but also incredibly large-scale conflicts. We're talking tank battles, air-to-air combat, massive ground force invasions. And this was a war that I think a lot of Australians would not be aware of, but loomed very large in Africa's recent history. And the debt the country owed to China for their help in the Liberation Wars. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. There, there's almost a bit of neo-colonial colonialism happening in parts of southern Africa where China is 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 taking uh, is making very uh, very strong inroads into many of those countries and a part of that is, is paying off its support for some of the liberation struggles uh, back in the um, in the 70s and the 80s mm. well if other countries get involved it's usually over resources yep. and quite often illegal resources correct and coming out of this area ivory diamonds and rhinoceros horn. Yes. Rhinoceros horn, war, worth more than gold or cocaine. And diamonds, yeah, and correct. Diamonds. Probably one of the most valuable substances on earth at the moment. What's the connection between rhinoceros horn and Sonia? Okay, so um, rhino horn, uh, the poaching of rhinos continues today um, in South Africa and has spilled over into neighbouring Namibia, maybe, maybe because they're the last two strongholds of, of the rhino. It's, it's a cause that Sonia is very, very concerned about, not necessarily because she's a greenie, but because uh, she's suffered a personal loss uh, this, at the beginning of the yeah, book, which I won't go into no, great No, there's a personal revenge mission. Uh, but a friend, a very close yeah. personal friend of hers has been killed by rhino poachers in the course of making a documentary about uh, that, that and going then, on. And then she receives, so she's in Vietnam of all places, and then receives a text message from Emma, I need your help. And of course, there's always problems with communication. Yes. You know, Emma expect you know wanted to write a bit more, but accidentally s- s- pressed send and didn't have the communications to get back to tell her mother that it wasn't desperate. Yes, exactly. There's been a bit of a communications breakdown. I think if your mother's a mercenary and you send her a message saying, I need help, then probably <laughs> the red flag goes up pretty well straight away. Well, you mentioned that uh, daughter Emma had found a body. No, whose body or what was the body Okay, doing so there? the archaeological dig, which interestingly enough is, is looking for um, uh, some finds or evidence of one of Namibia's previous struggles, mm. its initial fight for independence back at the turn of the 20th century, back around 1900s, uh, when Namibia was a German colony known as Southwest Africa. But instead of turning up um, uh, some victims from that early colonial war, they find a body dating back only about um, 25 years, back to the to Namibia's struggle for and independence. And they work out, out to be a pilot. Yeah, it's an airman. But there's no yeah. plane. No plane, yeah. And this brings in the title, An Empty Coast, because down the Atlantic side, it's called the Skeleton Coast. And mm. just quoting a little bit out of Tony Park's book, Namibia's Atlantic coastline is thousands of kilometres long and there are tens of thousands of square kilometres of desert and nothingness. You wouldn't even know where to start looking. But when there's word of this pilot that gets out, there's people from many, many different areas want to find this plane. And the first one we heard, we learn about is Matthew, Matthew the father. 
Yeah, um, so the, it, it does become a bit of a modern-day treasure hunt. The, mm. the discovery of the airman's body um, acts as a pointer, if you like, as to where a missing aircraft may have gone down back in the 1980s at the uh, near the tail end of the war in Angola. Uh, and the people who are looking for this aircraft are looking at it for very different reasons. Matthew Allchurch is a lawyer based in Cape Town, and he's looking for this plane because his son was the pilot, and his son has been missing in action from that war for 25 years. And so his, his motivation for finding the plane is very much a personal motivation to find his missing son's body. And then there's former CIA agent Hudson Bran, who's also interested in the plane. Yes, I brought Hudson back from my last book, The Hunter. Uh, Hudson's a safari guide turned private investigator. And uh, Matthew, the father of the missing pilot, uh, works out that Hudson Bram was in this place at the same time that this Mm. plane went missing and could very well have been on board that aircraft. uh, Well, then, you know, so these two guys have got together to... to, And they want to find the plane for very different reasons. For very different reasons. But then... Out of out of the blue, down the road, comes two other guys with guns ready to kill them. Yeah. For no reason. They don't have any identity. So finally we have got two dead bodies. Yep. <laughs> two burnt out The toll out is cars. mounting. <laughs> <laughs> and, but I like this. Uh, but fortunately, the grass fire had not jumped the main road. <laughs> so, you know, we have this whole thing about baddies and goodies right through it. And also... You know, how you can tell a baddie. We come across Irina. Now, how an author can make us really dislike somebody, and Tony Park did it in a very easy way. Irina learnt about shooting to fill the pot. Of course, this is shooting to... um, Kill, kill to, animals, kill yeah. animals. <laughs> but she turned into a trophy hunter. Oh yes, boo hiss. We didn't <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and sh- she and this Irina and Sonia had met before, and were to meet again as Irina was also looking for the aeroplane. What were her plans with Emma? Yeah, um, Irina is an interesting character because mm. Sonia encounters her earlier in the book and mistakes her for someone who she's not. But uh, Irina makes a pretty good villain, you know. Oh, Dan, she I've, does. I've I've found one thing I found writing books set in Africa over the last twelve years is that um, you can shoot up as many people as you want in a book, but if you kill an elephant or an animal, <laughs> you're in big trouble. So if you want to point out a baddie, make them a make them someone who's perhaps these days a trophy hunter. So. But this is where you actually put some more moral dilemmas into the book you know you talk about shooting lions but what is it what if it, the lion is killing a farmer's stock yeah you know? and yeah when does archaeology became become grave robbing exactly yeah no they're very good questions as well too so i mean the the fight the discovery of the body does lead everybody towards this missing aircraft this treasure hunt Irina has her own very special reasons for wanting to find this plane as well too and it does come down to money in the end as a lot of these things do but when you you mention um uh, the issue of lions being shot. I mean, one of the subplots in the book concerns the desert lions of Namibia mm. uh, who had existed in that very arid skeleton coast area that you talked about for centuries but came into trouble in the um, uh, later part of the 20th century where they increasingly came into conflict with farmers where the lions were taking cattle and goats and sheep and, and were persecuted by the farmers, shot by them and by trophy hunters as well. Those lions were almost extinct by the mid-1990s. But amazingly, through a number of conservation and research programs that have been put in place since then by a guy called Dr Flip Stander who I've put a fictionalised version of in the book, um, those lions' numbers have increased ten. There's now about 200 of those lines left. So. Well, we have the um, the observ- observation of one with the GPS and mm. just what happened with that. Yeah, that's but, based on a true story, actually. But I, what I what I really like too is we we do have the story about the mother and the daughter and yeah. this protective thing, but we also have it with little snippets 
from a lion. From a lioness, yeah. From the lioness. Comes. And I think you, you could do, certainly draw some parallels with oh, Sonia. you certainly can. Um, Sonia's very much kind of the lone huntress out there in the desert. And I've, I've tried to kind of encapsulate the story of the desert lions by featuring this, this, this lonely lioness and her cubs and the plight of her family over, over the years as well too. Because these, as I said, these desert lion numbers, were there, they were thought to be extinct by 1997, but this guy, Flip Stander, found 20 of them. And uh, mm. they are something of a success story. Mm. And so I do like to weave a bit of hope into the books, you know. It can seem as though it's all people getting shot and chased and blown up and things like that. That's not all. You know, under the this part of the world has beautiful night skies and wouldn't be right if there wasn't a little romance too. And Emma, the young, beautiful Emma, has got her keen lot of suitors. She has a couple of suitors, yeah. (laughs) Three suitors, I think. And what about Sonia? There's this um, uh, Hudson Brand who, uh, I I like the quote, um, he saw her... Oh, she reminded him of a cat gone feral, once sleek and attractive, now ragged and hissy. (laughs) (laughs) But let's get her idea. I'm going to get Tony Park to read from page 300, a little bit from his book, An Empty Coast. Sure. Okay. She stayed sitting, eyes scanning the darkness beyond the cordon of light. I saw a movement out there just now. I should point out that Sonia is at a, uh, on the edge of a waterhole in Natasha mm. National Park. Bran followed her line of sight and saw the slope-shouldered bulk of the hyena as it loped into view and headed straight for the water. I love those things, Sonia said. The hyena, in Bran's experience as a safari guide, rarely made it to guests' top ten animals, though he, like Sonia, had a soft spot for them. They live in a matriarchal society where the highest-ranked male in the clan is still subservient to the lowest female in the pecking order. They're extremely efficient predators. I've no idea why you might like hyenas. <laughs> Sonia looked up at him, and for a moment he thought he'd overstepped the mark. But then her eyes softened and her grimace cracked. She stood. I like you, Brand. Oh, I love, yeah, that's, that's as soft as it gets. I like hyenas too. I, I think I'm they're a highly view, underrated animal. I'm you know? going to view a hyena very differently they, they, from now They on. are incredibly good mothers and they're incredibly devoted. And uh, people think of them as sort of these nasty scavengers. And I think uh, the Disney Corporation may have a bit to blame oh. for this with, um, with The Lion King, where the hyenas are sort of unfairly cast as, as the baddies. In, in many ways, they're much nicer than lions. They, they look after each other a lot more than lions do. Do they uh, have nice eyes? I've never seen one. They have lovely eyes, and they're look. Their babies are very cute. <laughs> babies look like, look like little brown bears. But they they have a very interesting structured society, and that passage in there is 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 true. That is the makeup of of a hyena clan. It's it's extremely female dominated, uh, and the highest ranked male is still lowest to the still oh. beneath the lowest ranked female. Well, Tony Park, I've learned about wars. I've learned about hyenas, and just. I can't believe I really enjoyed reading so much Shoot 'em Up because <laughs> there was quite a bit of that in it, but really, really thoroughly enjoyed An Empty Coast. And Jan, moving on to my interview with Steve Toltz. Here we go. The cover of Steve Toltz's latest book, Quicksand, is a rendering of the myth of Sisyphus condemned to roll a boulder up a hill, an interminable, pointless task for eternity. And it goes to the very core of Steve's book and the life of one of the main characters. So, Steve, welcome to 3CR. Thank you very much for having me. Well, the character I'm talking about, of course, is Aldo Benjamin. Is he Sisyphus? Well, yes, he's he's very energetic. Uh, even his best friend sort of describes him as uh, a well-known parasite and failure who's declared multiple bankruptcies and you might find um, sharing a cigarette in an alleyway with a masturbating hobo. 
entrepreneurial schemes, all sorts of things, but none of them ever work. No. The book is about fear, and Aldo has these very particular fears about perhaps falling into hospital or prison, and his idea to combat the inevitable calamities that he think will befall him and his one and his loved ones is to have money. Well, then, is he representative of us all, or is he uniquely individual in his approach? Well, look, I think both. He's very aware of the things that befall us. For instance, his fear of hospitals. Barring a plane crash, every one of us is going to end up in a hospital at some point. Hospitals are, are never empty, but we don't we don't go around thinking about them every day, but he's kind of super constant awareness. Of it all. Okay, well... You've mentioned his friend. The, the book begins with Liam Wilder attempting to write Aldo's story. Aldo is such a magnificent uh, character that Liam wants to put him down on paper. Moreover, whenever I was in mid-creation, a phrase from artist within, artist without would eviscerate me. I had repeatedly failed to structure an invented story in a convincing or original manner and I could not, no matter how I tried, come up with engaging plots, write realistic dialogue or convincing characters. Therefore, when I decided that the traditional, conventional novel was a contrived and predictable anachronism and I should no longer waste my time with it, Morell's work snidely castigated me. An artist's theory of art is always founded on his shortcomings as an artist, his passion for that theory in direct proportion to the severity of his failures. So we've got Liam wanting to be a writer, looking at Aldo for inspiration. And you've just summed up basically the life of a lot of writers here. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that also was a particular dig at a branch of criticism that, that is sort of saying that the novel is dead and that, that basically what people are kind of wanting is more reality and not fiction. But I think that's sort of not true. We all, Everybody sort of still wants the same kind of storytelling. We still want fiction. We still want imagination. And Liam wants to be a writer but finds himself as a policeman. How did that happen? Something that I realised in my early 20s was that I, I knew that if I had a fallback career that inevitably I would fall back on it. And so, which is why I kind of forced myself to stick to jobs that had no future, like telemarketing or um, working in a bar or whatever. And um, so Liam tries the same thing, but so he goes from the sewer end of one of the the job market to another until he decides to research a job about uh, a book about a policeman and goes through the training in order to do the research and inadvertently gets the qualifications of a New South Wales police officer. But all the while, he's following Aldo around, taking down Aldo's quotes, Aldo's inspirations, Aldo's story yes. as the content of a novel, which is basically what the novel is in many ways. It's, it's Aldo. It, That's exactly it. So it's a way then for you to tell Aldo's story, to grab a character. So that was fascinating. But how would you describe then the relationship between Aldo and Liam? Well, they're old friends and it's certainly the relationship that I enjoy describing, which is the love-hate relationship. Well, it's, it's a love affair in some ways, if mm. I'm not taking it too far. Until I met him, almost all my male friendships were based on homoerotic wrestling or the light-hearted undermining of each other's confidence. But for Aldo and me, 
Our connection was of like minds on pointless adventures, whether that be taunting bouncers outside nightclubs, riding shopping trolleys down suicidally steep declines, or attending first home auctions to force up the bids of nervous young couples. In those days, Aldo and I had such great conversations that every sunset seemed like the end of an era. We were young and there were no unpleasant surprises waiting for us in bathroom mirrors. We did things we wouldn't feel guilty about for literally years. Nobody was on a diet. <laughs> so is it a love affair? Yeah, it is. I wanted to write about friendships also because, especially in Australia, we have these ideas of kind of male friendships, which is very specific. For example, I remember that after this, I don't know, the idea we have of maleness in Australia is always, um, I, I just never quite connect to I remember after my wife had our child, you know, they hand out the, the pamphlets in the hospital about what women should do if they have postpartum depression and they go to groups and talk about it. And then they gave us a pamphlet for what men should do and, and they said, go to a football game with a friend. Well, men need those environments to develop, to grow, and they're going to be limited if it's a football match. And the other thing is, really, the, the women are not necessarily as central. They're important. We have Liam breaking from his wife, Tess, but Aldo's relationships with Stella, Mimi and Saffron, mm. but they're not as pivotal or as essential in some ways as Aldo and Liam. In, in a way, that is also because the book is what I consider to be a spiritual autobiography, and I have split myself into the two characters, Aldo and Liam, so they're basically just me. Of course, in any kind of memoir or autobiography, the other characters are not, are not going to be as central as the protagonist. And then you've got Mr. Morell, who comes oh. in as well. What can you tell us about him? So he is their art teacher from high school who becomes this kind of ongoing mentor to Liam um, and he become, he comes in later in the story. Yeah, this is my favourite thing to really to write about, which is to create a character so that I can kind of pontificate and obliviate about opinions in an authoritarian voice that I don't myself possess. But it's, I guess it's a fun way to have to sort of throw out aphorisms and to really consider, in this case, a lot of ideas about art. Often one discovers too late that the chosen subject is wholly incompatible with one's talent, which is like a fatal illness only diagnosable after death. <laughs> He's full of these sayings, and they're in a book called Artist Within, Artist Without, which Aldo and Liam use as a kind of guiding light or inspiration for their creative endeavours. So Morel plays an essential role in their development. These ideas, I guess, about art and living, they kind of underscore the whole novel. And they're just ideas that I either had for a while or wrote very specifically for this book. Well, there is a saying about teachers that I picked up on. A teacher is a teacher at a molecular level. Now, that struck a chord. Instead of becoming a policeman, I became a teacher in terms of uh, finding a way to survive, so to speak. The meaning of that? came out of the actual scene of Morel coming sort of into the artist residency where Aldo is living and just his behaviour continuing to be the teacher. It did um, strike me as I was writing it that the teachers I know, they do have 
there's there's something where it has kind of has affected them in practically at their DNA, so they can never kind of turn it off. But this is the background to the characters. There's uh, the style of your uh, writing and the approach you've taken, which is eclectic, diverse. It almost begins uh, with stand-up comedy in terms of when we're talking with Aldo. Just tell me your idea. You know how we are such optimists, even after Armageddon's aren't final? What do you mean? It's post-apocalypse this, post-zombie apocalypse that. People are honestly fretting about what to do after the end times. Right, so? So you know the slight embarrassment you feel for someone who says they never think about death? Yeah. You know how it's weird that people will trust any old block of ice in their drinks? Yeah. You know how people are worried that their kid's going to turn to them and say, what did you do to the biosphere, Daddy? I laugh. True. You know how people used to want to be rock stars, but now they just want rock stars to play at their birthday parties? Uh-huh. You know how we now think pornography is free speech? Like, I don't agree with tentacle sex, but I'll die for your right to produce it. Right. And we always know people hated their freedom, but now we know they're also contemptuous of privacy. Sure. And you know how there's no replacement cycle too short for today's consumer? Of course. And so it goes on. It's like a stand-up comedy routine in many ways. Yeah, look, it is. I mean, I have sort of come to accept that comedy is my native language in terms of writing. And and that is literally all, all I can do. You know, I mean, of course, I'm also telling a story. And when you're writing a book... What's tricky about it is you kind of you have to work at sort of structure and character and dialogue and setting and description and landscape and language. But if I was just to sit down, I mean, those kind of sentences are the things that, that come out the most naturally. But then also in terms of this style and in terms of the structure of the book, we have that beginning with Liam trying to capture Aldo's life on paper, but then we find it coming out next in a police interview because of Liam's background as a policeman he gets to interview Aldo for an indiscretion so Aldo starts telling his story there but then that moves on to Aldo's statement in court and he's in court for two indi- more than indiscretions one's murder and and that is actually the the title of that section is the madness of the muse in yes. many ways and at one point he says to the judge what do you mean, Your Honour? This is the short version. So what are you doing here with all of these sorts of approaches and styles? People write for different reasons. My reason is, I guess, the pleasure principle. So, I, I mean, I must be engaged and I find um, it joyful to write. But I also find it joyful to sort of write in different formats. So going from sort of one first person to another first person. Uh, there's a There's a poem in the book. There's, uh, as you say, there's an interview. So it moves between all of these sorts of forms and each in their own way brings out Aldo's story or the musings of his mind, which can't be contained, can't be stopped. No, and I mean, I guess the dirty secret of this kind of book is that all of those narrative decisions are often problem-solving. So I might have written all these different sort of sections and but some of them didn't fit in, say, Liam's voice, and it needed to be in Aldo's voice. And how am I going to do that? And so um, I came up with kind of narrative solutions to those problems. Yes, because it does start with Liam, but then the majority of the book is Aldo, yes. in Aldo's voice sort yeah. of thing. But again, the workings of a, of a writer trying to capture a character mm. and then disappearing into the character. So there's that sense of the writer there as well. This sort of gets us on to the story, which in some ways 
is a minor part of the book, if I can put it that way. No, it's true. That's why the book is is difficult to describe. And when people sort of say, oh, what's your book about? I find it almost impossible. Well, it's a book about nothing but everything, which fits with where I started with this notion of Sisyphus. But it goes into uh, Aldo and his schemes, his relationships, uh, and all of these sorts of things. But it's, it's more the engagement with mm. life, which sort of gets me to where I wanted to be at the end, which is that notion of the purpose of the book. We make art because? We make art because life is a hostage situation in which our abductors are silent and we cannot even intuit their demands. And then there's another place in the book I say that we make art for the same reason we do anything, which is fear of the alternative. So is this book about making art then? Is the story, what there is of it, all about making art? Yeah, look, it's about making art. It's also a book about fear of life and the fear of suffering and the fear of not trying and the fear of trying too hard and the pointlessness of fearing. So is this really uh, a book about indulging in life, whatever shape or form it takes? Yeah, I guess it doesn't matter if you... Um, lie under the covers sort of quaking with fear or you jump up and down and, and sort of go and grasp whatever you can. Um, so you, you might as well try and enjoy it. The book is called Quicksand. The author is Steve Toltz and it's uh, released by Penguin. So Steve, thank you very much for coming in today. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.